listeners, you are listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week, we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We're your hosts, Sam Collier and Sarah Cho. This week, we'll be discussing the play Fairview by Jackie Sibley's Drury. The play was commissioned by Berkeley Rep and Soho Repertory Theater. Uh, in April 2019, Fairview won the 2019 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. We are on a roll with these Pulitzer Prizes. We are. We want to learn the secret. What makes a play a Pulitzer Prize winning play? Yep, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. yep. Um, speaking of which, the committee... Pulitzer Prize Committee uh, called the play a hard-hitting drama that examines race in a highly conceptual, layered structure, uh, ultimately bringing audiences into an actor's community to face deep-seated uh, prejudices. So, ho, ho, ho. Get in it. <laughs> yeah, so maybe I'll just read um, a summary. So I, when we went into this, I didn't really know much about the play except that it was about this idea of um, – the white gaze, but I'll just read this synopsis that's on the back of the copy I have, um, which is the TCG copy. So here's what it says on the back of the book. Grandma's birthday approaches. Beverly is organizing the perfect dinner, but everything seems doomed from the start. The silverware is all wrong. The carrots need chopping and the radio is on the fritz. What at first appears to be a family comedy takes a sharp, sly turn into a startling examination of deep-seated paradigms about race in America. So um, that's what the play is, although there's so much more to unpack. Should mm -hmm. we just start with first impressions? Yes. Um, my first impressions is just how many turns there were. Mm. Like, you know, the setup of the first act and I'm like, okay, so it's going to be this kind of a play. And then immediately it just completely moves away from the first act, the, the way it was set up and then just completely, um, I can't even describe like all the different, every scene was so different um, mm -hmm. after the first act. And I was just, the one, it's kind of weird, but the, it makes me think of this improv game called New Choice where, you know, two improvisers that are doing a scene and then mm -hmm. immediately someone on the side could be like, New Choice, and they, they have to redo the scene in a whole oh. new way uh, or go move on to the next scene in a whole new way or say some a phrase differently or something. The and there's something two about, performers have to change same, it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so – that's kind of one of, I don't know why, but some, it reminded me of that improv game with this play. Cool. Yeah. So I'm curious to know, like you said, when you were reading act one, you had these expectations of, or you thought you knew what kind of play it was going to be. So for people who haven't read it, um, mm -hmm. how would you describe what that play is in act one? And the first, in act one? Yeah. Um, I, you know, uh, yeah, I thought it was very like slapsticky comedy, mm -hmm. and I was like, "Oh, this is kind of makes me think of um, I don't know all those like black family comedies in the seventies. You know, there was something about it. I was like, "Oh, okay, this is like a TV sitcom, a sitcom, um, mm -hmm. yeah, just very situational." You know, they're like, "Oh gosh, I'm trying to get ready for this birthday, you know, this party." And there's like, you know, there's this sense of like nervousness, and they're like, "Oh, it's gonna be okay," you know, and so this whole family coming together um, 
And there's like tension between the husband and the, so, so Beverly between her husband and between her sister, you know, and there's like mm-hmm. um, tension between the mother and the daughter because the daughter wants to take time off before college and the mom wants her to go to college. Right? So there's just kind of right. these family issues, I guess, that um, mm-hmm. feel like part of a typical family drama and you're kind of expecting those tensions yeah. to bubble up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's, and here's what's so weird. I was like, I was, you know, reading the, I did read the the synopsis right before, you know, mm-hmm. kind of, un, and a little bit about the play before I read into it. So I wasn't like laughing, you know, I was kind of like, I was, I was kind of um, cautious about laughing because I was like, mm-hmm. maybe I shouldn't be laughing about this. Not just yet. <laughs> I don't know. I was just very cautious. And then, but then now, then right after act one, I was like, oh, I guess I now understand what the act one was trying to set up for. Um, it's this like expectation first and then the playwright trying to deconstruct or trying to um, make uh, these unexpected choices about what how we should view race and mm-hmm. um, and then what you just mentioned about surveillance. Yeah, so I wanted to read this quote. Um, Drury was interviewed for NPR, and she was talking about how she and um, Sarah Benson, the director. Um, we're talking about surveillance. So she says, we were both really interested in thinking about surveillance and why surveillance affects people of color in a deeper way. Um, And she goes on to say, and this idea of being watched by someone as a person of color, there's automatically some sort of a sense of suspicion, especially if the watcher is a white person. And so we started from a place of trying to create what in the theater felt like a normal black family and then introducing the idea of someone watching that family and that watching um, how it changes their behavior in the course of their lives. So mm. I just find that so fascinating. And I think she's doing something in this play that I don't think I've ever seen before. That's um, really exciting. She's making us watch ourselves watching the play in a really um, intentional way. Yeah. So So let's talk about what happens in act two. So we've just seen this family preparing for a party and then at the end of act one the mom faints she's like chopping the carrots and all of a sudden she falls to the floor and then i'm trying to remember yeah everyone's like oh because the cake burned that's what it was Mm -hmm. so she's freaking out about the cake and then she faints and then what happens in act two sarah (laughs) oh my gosh well there's a series i think this first is like a series what i felt like two person scenes Mm. right um but we don't see them we just hear them we hear them yeah and we're we're watching the same action we saw in act one over again Mm -hmm. but yeah but then there's these two person scenes of like voices that we hear. And it's like talking about um, if you were, what race would you want to be? Yeah. <laughs> right. And every character has like a different answer. Um, the first one was like, I think it was Asian. I want to be Asian. I was, 
which was so interesting. I was like, what? I don't know. I had to really sit and really think about like, what, what is this scene doing here by mm-hmm. putting this question out saying, what race do you want to, would you want to be? Like there's like some preferential choice. Like, um, does each race have some, you know, benefit <laughs> over the other? Um, and so we, we see that maybe three times by two different characters, mm-hmm. uh, first talking about being Asian. Um, and then the second one was, I think was about being maybe black. I think the second the one was, was Latinx, Latinx and the third. Latinx. Oh, it was European. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. There's European this. European race. Yeah. Betts, who, I mean, we don't get any information about her, but I think she's meant to be European, some nationality in Europe rather than American. Um, Mm -hmm. And she said she would be Slav. Um, And then the other characters are challenging that and saying that's not a race. And she's like, yes, of course it is. And so they have this back and forth. Yeah. And then there's um, the character who says he would be Latinx. And then Susie says she would be african-american even though she's been resisting the question the whole time she's mm-hmm. she decides she would be she would be african-american and and so but as they're having this really uh for lack of a better word problematic conversation we're watching the action of act one over again which i just find fascinating because there are these glimmers throughout act one as we're watching act one the first time through there are these moments that seem kind of off, like the radio doesn't work, or they're just like moments that seem kind of strange. A character will pause in the middle of the scene and look out at the audience, you know, as if they're suddenly aware of the audience. And um, I just would love to see this in the theater and see how those moments mm-hmm. um, interact with the audio scenes in act two and if they're somehow like aware of the people talking about the race they would want to be or somehow like there are these moments of overlap um that kind of speak to each other hmm you know what i mean yeah mm-hmm mm-hmm Okay, so, and then there's this thing that happens at the end of the play um, mm-hmm. where Keisha, the daughter, or the actor playing the daughter, I'm not sure because it gets a little blurry, um, asks all the white people in the audience to come up onto the stage. So what did you think about that? Was that the end of Act 2? It's It was or the end of, act th- end of Act 3. Oh, okay. Um that was again another turn where I'm like, oh wow, now the play is doing something differently again. Um, but before I get to explaining about that more, um, my take, but yeah, in the beginning or the end of Act Two was just all stage directions mm. that was written. And now that you're saying, you're saying this, I'm like wondering if this was supposed to happen while those scenes were happening, mm-hmm. if this was all supposed to coincide. Um, and then there's a sort of a replay and then 
end of act three um when there's this breaking of the fourth wall and i that's i think that moment where i was like i honestly didn't know how i should take this play i think for me i was feeling Mm -hmm. like um what is this play the play trying to say about race like because after all those these scenes um and the questions and the the um and the stage directions and now it's sort of turned and it's like at me <laughs> mm-hmm. and so i yeah i was it's like my mind i found myself trying to put the pieces together like okay so in act one has happened this way we see these series of scenes and these discussions about race in act two with the action of um replaying of act one like you mentioned and then act three there's this big turn of breaking that just again all i mean that also was felt the most highly theatrical thing to do mm-hmm. when you you when you get presentational and you go right at the audience and i was i honestly i was like wondering if people really went up because i don't the thing is i was like wondering the pauses like did the the actor give some time for the audience to react and like you mean it like and wait for people to come up on stage mm-hmm, come up the stage because mm-hmm. you know when you're reading you're just sort of blow through it <laughs> you're just going to reading it mm-hmm. reading it but i was i made me wonder if there were moments that the actors made the decision to wait and pause for mm-hmm. just a moment for the act for the for the audience to um be like okay maybe i should go up there on the stage <laughs> or something you know um yeah cuz she's talking for kind of a long time right right and mm-hmm. there was no because i think i think the way that singing is written out when you break the fourth wall, you're talking to the audience. It's, I feel like if the actor is having to, you know, obviously memorize the lines, but it's also this gauging of the energy. Right. It's like, okay, so I'm saying this line, how would they respond? And then I'll respond back again with my lines. You know, it's like you kind of have, so I, that's, I was so curious about is how that would play out. Um, mm-hmm. in a live audience and like the choices that the actor would have to make depending on how the audience will respond and it could that's why at that moment I was like maybe again like one of those things where oh this could that could be that play where it's different every time because yeah you just don't know what the audience is gonna how they're going to react maybe they'll just walk out and they're like you know what f this I'm out of here <laughs> no <laughs> no audience participation from me I think it really depends upon the composition of the audience and mm-hmm. um, where it is, how old people are, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, I completely agree. I think it would be really different every night. I found it interesting that she wrote in that the stage manager kind of leads the mm-hmm. way and is the first one to go up on stage i think that's really smart oh the planted the yeah planted. exactly yeah oh that's so i guess i did kind of skip over act three so i guess so what happens in act three is that these white people who have been just having this kind of 
philosophical conversation about what race they would rather be, um, then insert themselves into this story that, or this scene of the black family preparing for a party and they like show up and then they start mm-hmm. ruining everything and they start mm-hmm. um, saying things that aren't true and changing the story and creating all this drama. Um, mm-hmm. And on I thought grandma's that was birthday. fascinating. <laughs> yeah. On grandma's birthday. On grandma's birthday. Yeah. And they're like trying to be the grandma. And, mm-hmm. um, and I thought it was so interesting that Keisha is the one who's like, something is weird, but I don't know what it is. But everybody else in the family is kind of going along with it. Um, mm. But it's the young person. It's the daughter who's saying this doesn't feel right. There's something really strange going on. Mm. Um, yeah, I just really want to see this play performed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is another play that I'm just like amazed. Um, like I, I just don't think about that a play could be like this. <laughs> like, yeah, I was like, wait, how? Like, what was the process? Like, I'm was you know Jackie just sitting there and being like, I have an idea of this one play, and then like, what inspires these scenes after, and why? the uh the level of technicality like how or the intention behind each scene mm-hmm. what motivates like why was a scene written this way for what purpose mm-hmm. you know um like I, I'm kind of wonder if there were other scenes that we did not see you know that she's written and um it didn't include because yeah I don't know. Would you say that there is a narrative like a beginning, middle, end? Oh, I I mean, so do you remember how at Iowa Art, I don't even remember who he was quoting, but he said, um, he told us about somebody saying every play is a beginning, middle, and end, but not necessarily in that order. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like, there is a beginning, middle, and end, but they're kind of all mixed up or they're all simultaneous somehow or um, mm-hmm. maybe the beginning is split across two different parts of the play. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can't quite think about it, it its structure clearly. Um, now that you say that, yeah. So in my mind, if you know, when I try to create a timeline, mm-hmm. it's like, it's it's like Doc from Back to the Future. You know, he's like drawing this map of the timeline. I'm like, here, here, Marty. Like, this is where we go from the the, the past to the future. But I see this timeline where all these like trees of lines <laughs> just like goes like whole different direction and then returning back to the beginning. Yeah. But then going forward. Like, I it's that's why I was like so many turns. It feels tipsy turvy. Mm-hmm. Um but in not in a negative way. Like I kind of like being pulled in different directions with this. Like I liked it. I enjoyed it. And I was like, I mean, I was like, I don't know how to feel after this, but I'm really questioning everything. Yeah. What I'm, what I'm watching or what I'm seeing. Um, maybe you know, whether it be books and TV shows and movies. Um, 
Remember, like, maybe what, what are those questions that you have? Um, oh gosh, like, well, this is, I don't, I don't know if this is what the play wanted me to think about exactly, but I just constantly now I'm like thinking about, um, these shows that are centered around black American experience, you know, Mm -hmm. like, um, I'm trying to, the most recent one I was thinking about, I just said Get Out, but then there was another one on HBO um, where, yeah, we're playing with the tropes over like what um, race is America, but like who is watching these shows? Like who subscribes to HBO? Like who mm-hmm. subscribes to it? Um, typically it is like, young professionals, you know, who kind of afford HBO. It's mm-hmm. like this premium cable um, watching uh, this, like, sci-fi African-Americans running around <laughs> chopping uh, crazy lizards. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm, I do I'm trying to subscribe show. to HBO. Is- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it's just, like, I, I, I am constantly thinking about the subscribers like who subscribes yeah. who's watching what um their socioeconomic background to you know their um where they're from the rural city you know who's watching so that made me really this play made me think about that a lot deeply is that i think it's so is. yeah well i think it's so interesting because i i have heard so often the advice um as a playwright that I shouldn't think about the audience that I should, you know, tell the story I want to tell and not think about who's going to be watching it or not think about what the audience is going to think or say about it. And I, I love that this play really flies in the face of that advice and is like, you actually, everything you write, you're thinking about the audience, whether you're aware of it or not, even living your life, you're thinking about who's watching you. And just to try to acknowledge that that audience is always there and mm-hmm. is always shaping the kind of story you're able to tell, um, mm-hmm. I think is so. I just, I I just love that. It's just it feels very radical and very important to mm-hmm. um, point back at the audience yeah. and and acknowledge that. Yeah, for me <laughs> personally, like I am fully aware when in the room I'm the only Asian American playwright, mm-hmm. and then I'm also extra fully aware when there's another Asian American playwright, mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. in the room. There's oh, there's two of us. Sometimes it's like I can't th- stop thinking about it. I'm like, oh, there's another one of me right now, <laughs> and, then just, mm-hmm. and then like even if the professor is talking about something, I'm not paying attention. I'm just looking fully aware. There's another Asian American player in the room. <laughs> well, and do you feel like that shapes the kinds of things you say in that room and like the stories that you're telling? I mean, it must, right? I maybe. Um, I you know I try to push it deep down <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and try to focus being, being present in the room and the space. But yeah, I think so. Like I think um, I just become really aware. Um, Mm-hmm. what I'm about to say or um, the discussions that come out of, you know, what is it I'm trying to say or, um, yeah. There's like, I think there's like a level 
of intimidation. <laughs> Meaning you're intimidating. <laughs> oh yeah, that could be. Um or just intimidating that um that there is another Asian American playwright in the room. Yeah. Um Yeah. Which is weird because I'm like, I does you know do straight white guys feel that? <laughs> like there's another straight white guy in here. Like, do they feel intimidated by each other? Another I'm maybe? sure they do. But do I think also so? think it's probably very different. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. Well, that's fair for you. <laughs> Listeners, we want to know what you think about it and tell us your thoughts. Tell us your favorite moments. Also, I just want to say this play made me miss being in the theater so mm. much. I just mm. I just miss it, you guys. I miss being in the theater. I miss that time pre-2020 when you could like go see a show and not only sit next to strangers, but also spontaneously like get up and go up on stage around like forget about being six feet apart from people. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I just wonder if this will ever be possible again, this kind of world now that we have COVID. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I say yes. I think so. It's not, anytime soon <laughs> but <laughs> i think as time go moves on and you know new the only thing is is like when another if another pandemic hits which it seems to me that it's always just around right around the corner well and people keep saying we got really lucky with this one that it wasn't more deadly yeah. it wasn't i mean it's super contagious but it's not actually that deadly compared to you know flu viruses yeah. and Oof. If this was the easy one, I shudder to think about what's around the corner. <laughs> okay, well, let's go to close ends before I get too depressed. Okay. Um, I could go first. Um, I started reading Free Food for Millionaires by Min Jin Lee, and I love it. I love her writing so much so far. Um, this is, I didn't read Pachinko just yet. I want to read Free Food for Millionaires first. <laughs> um, and gosh, I just love her writing so far. It is so beautiful and clear and concise. And I just like – like. For me, I have I really don't have patience for fiction. I really don't. Really? <laughs> like, I didn't know I, that. I, I I think it's so hard for me to like I get really fidgety. I'm like, oh God, there's all this like internal talk. <laughs> um but but I I'm actually thoroughly enjoying this book, Free Food for Millionaires. Um and it's also looking at Asians, Asian um, Asian Americans. Um it's sort of, you know. When Crazy Rich Asians came out and that movie was like it it it, it was a very funny movie, but it, it also kind of shed light on just sort of this idea about wealthy Asians. Like mm. that I, I feel like a lot of people don't think too deeply about when it comes to Asian culture, but within Asians there is this separation with like wealth and like everyone else. You know, like mm. that um wealthy Asians kind of live by their own rules and then they just sort of have this view. And so um, they're just a whole other culture there. But um, so this is kind of open. This book is sort of shedding light on that in a different way. 
um, especially being Korean American. And so, um, so far I'm enjoying it a lot. Um, once I'll finish, I'll give you my review, <laughs> my hot take. <laughs> well, we look forward to that. Yeah, I really liked Pachinko. But this one is her first book, right? Free Food Family. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I want to read that. And I think it was like t- almost 10 years before Pachinko, I think. Or something long yeah. time. But it's so – and it's so – the way she writes is just – it's so expansive, the world. Like mm-hmm. I just feel the world so big in in such – in few words. <laughs> so um, – but it's also really dense. Like, the, I mean, it's like, what, three, 400 pages? It's, it's a really dense book, but I'm just like flying through it. I'm like, wow, this is, it's a page turner. Oh, cool. Okay. Your turn. Um, okay. Well, my glisten is I have been teaching um, poetry classes virtually for fourth and fifth graders um, over the past oh few God. weeks. And um, for one of the sessions, we looked at some odes by Pablo Neruda, and I was just reminded of how joyous and delicious his odes are. He just writes about small everyday objects like scissors and onions and like pairs of socks. And he writes these beautiful, expansive poems celebrating mundane objects. And it's just such a good reminder of how much beauty there is in the world, um, even when we're stuck inside due to a pandemic we can still celebrate like Mm. lemons (laughs) or whatever um yeah okay i have a question when you're teaching poetry to fourth fifth graders Mm -hmm. um like how hard is that (laughs) (laughs) it's super fun the so it's a little tricky this year because i am appearing on a screen but they're all in person so they're Mm. all in the classroom and i'm kind of my face is projected on the whiteboard um so it's a little tricky to hold their attention in that mm-hmm. way. Um, but what is really fun is, you know, so we read some poems together. I ask them what words and phrases stand out to them. And we talk about, you know, the ideas in the poem or what it makes them feel. And then they write their own. And it's super fun getting to hear the things they write about. So mm-hmm. um, cool. Yeah. That's my glisten. Great glisten. Great glistens. Great play. Yeah. I really liked Fairview. I think this is one of my favorites of the ones we've read. This year or all the plays? Oh, gosh. I don't even know. I mean, I just said one of my favorites. I don't have to rank them, right? (laughs) No. No, that's true. It's too many to remember. I did. We did this on our last episode or um, when we read um, Kara Churchill's play, but I'm so curious to know what smell this play is. Oh. <laughs> For you. Oh, my gosh. There's so many choices because there's like the smell of burnt birthday cake, mm-hmm. which felt very visceral. Yeah. Um, But I don't know. Maybe it would be – well, yeah, I'll just stick with that. Burnt birthday yeah. cake. Yeah, I was what thinking frost. I was just thinking straight up frosting. Frosting. Like, just the sweetness the of the frosting. Um, and then there's that feeling like when you eat too much frosting and you feel a little bit yes. sick and you're like, oh, that was a mistake. Okay. <laughs> I probably shouldn't share this story, but there was a story of um, Nick told me a story of when it was his birthday. His mom made him um, 
cooking monster cake. It was all blue. And <laughs> he was so excited. He ate the entire cake. Like he ate the oh cake and he threw up blue cake. <laughs> Blue frosting. And uh, how old was he? I think it was like four. Three or four. <laughs> I don't know. He was really young. Oh, so. little Nick. Yeah. He told me that story. Maybe I shouldn't air it, but whatever. <laughs> I thought it was a very cute story, and it's very fitting to frosting. Um, he's never listened to this. Shh, don't tell anybody. <laughs> all right. That's all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.